Thank you for tuning into the Freedom Church podcast, where you can catch our Sunday sermon on demand at any time. Hit the subscribe button so you don't miss out on any of the content that's shared every week at our local church in Round Rock, Texas. Here's this week's sermon. Good morning, Freedom Church. How's everybody doing this morning? Man, turn to your neighbor and tell him this is the last time that we were meeting here, and uh, we're excited. And, uh, and we're not discounting all the great things that the Lord has done. God has done some awesome things in this place. People's lives have been changed. Man, people have been dedicated. You've encountered God in awesome ways. But how many guys? God is not about a place. He, man, the church has never been about a building. The Greek word is ecclesia. We're a movement of God, and we're getting ready to move into a new place for a new season. But here's just what I want to ask you this question. If God did something significant in your life, man, he man, saved you, healed you, gave you a brand new revelation in this house. And the last, just raise your hand right there where we're at. Man, look at all the hands that are going up. And God has done some awesome, awesome, awesome things. And I love you. And as, as we're looking at this, you know, our sound system is kind of portable. We don't have any lights. Uh, man, those projectors, this is kind of like we've been wandering in the wilderness. If you read the story of... Uh, yeah, of Moses that their shoes never ran, they never wore out. Well, this projector has been with us for 12 years. It's not going to make the journey to the new place. Let's just say that. And if you look at this projector, you see that thing? We used to set up and tear it down and we kind of cut it out. And that's not, we're going to have a brand new LED video wall that will be there. It is going to be amazing. So I just want to prepare you as we get to the new place. We get to the new place. It's not going to be 100% done. Okay. It's going to be more like 40 or 50% done. Just saying. But every week you're going to come in, there's going to be like, it's going to be Christmas for like two, three months. Man, man, a cafe will be down there and we're going to have a cafe with frappuccinos and, and all kinds of coffee and all the proceeds from there will go to missions. So that's where it's going to go from all that. So that's going to be where it's going to be. So that's what we're going to be doing. All these things that we're going to have new bathrooms. Every surface has been touched, but we might not have floors for Christmas Eve, but how many of you guys know Jesus probably didn't have floors either when he was born, and we still celebrated Christmas. So I love you. I'm excited. I'm thankful for the team that has worked hard, especially our media, uh, Pastor Joel, our boy Z back there, Wyatt. They've been here till 11 o'clock, just every night, just kind of just working hard. And let me just say this. There's one guy who's probably MVP, this guy right here, Dave Maniachi. He's been on speed dial. Thank you, Dave. Like he comes in the middle of the night, in the middle of challenges. Seriously, thank you. Thank you for helping us out, man. We're thankful for all these people that have helped out in so many different ways. One more time before I get into preaching, there's a very special guest we have in here today. She was our uh, executive pastor for many years. She was the vice president of operations for Sports Clips. She helped to grow from 500 to 1,000 stores. Connie Boltinghouse and her sister Kathy is here. Man, at the last year, thank you so much, Connie. We're honored that you're here. We, she, we haven't seen her in a couple years, but she's visiting right now, and she's part of this special service. I'm, I'm excited what God is doing. So, man, I'm going to talk about the first family Christmas tree today. You know, growing up, one of my favorite family traditions was setting up the Christmas tree. We would play Christmas carols on records. How many of you guys remember records? You're really old if you remember records like me. We had, uh, and one of the things that we would do for Christmas is we would set up the Christmas tree on December 9th, my brother's birthday, and we would take it down on December 27th, my birthday. Like, man, Merry Christmas, Happy Birthday. That's what happens when you're born the day after. My parents didn't have great planning with that, but thank God for all that. You know, but I love Christmas time because mom would make popcorn. She'd make hot cocoa, and we would all gather around the living room, and we would decorate the tree. 
And just the sight of the tree filled my heart with excitement. It reminded me that Christmas was around the corner and I was about to get some presents. But now that same Christmas tree that brought so much excitement and joy as a kid now can bring anxiety and stress as an adult because adulting isn't fun and the adult says amen. Instead of receiving gifts, we are responsible for getting gifts for all kinds of people. And it's especially hard to get your wife that perfect gift for Christmas. I know, man, I'm not going to get deeper in this. You ask her what she wants for Christmas, and she says, I don't care. Or I don't really want anything for Christmas. (laughs) Woe to the man who believes that lie. She wants something. And it's your God-given duty as her husband to find out what she wants. It's one of the great riddles of all mankind. <laughs> and and how many, how, man, how many guys have failed almost every year to get in the right? You're like, I know, I know. Lord, maybe this year. But I, I, I really like uh, the strategy I heard a little boy take as he was uh, trying to, writing a letter to God, trying to get the right Christmas gift. This is what he said, dear God. I've been good for six months. And then he thought to him, thought about, this is God. I'm writing to, God knows everything, so he crossed out six. Oh, dear God, I've been good for three months. Oh, no, that's not true. Let me redo it again. Uh, Lord, I've been good for three weeks. And then he says, man, that's not true. He put the pencil down. He went over to the nativity scene. He got the little Mary figurine and said, God, if you ever want to see your mother again. (laughs) That's way better, right? See, the sight of the Christmas tree can bring stress for other reasons than just gifts. For us, it reminds us that we're going to spend long periods of time with our families. And depending on your family situation, that can be a good thing or a bad thing. Comedian George Burns once said, happiness is having a large, caring, close-knit family in another city. (laughs) How many of you guys have the perfect family? Raise your hands. In reality, all of our families have issues. There's a crazy uncle, a strange aunt, a wild child, a crazy parent who says the randomest things that are the most impolitically correct things at the craziest times. See, and you bring somebody to meet them, and they're like, Mom, Dad, just shut up, please. But family's so important. We need family. It's so important for our development. It provides us with a sense of identity, belonging, security, and purpose. And like never before, if you, I don't know if you've seen it in our culture, people are searching for their family origins. They're wanting to find out where their family tree came from. And people will buy these ancestry kits. Have you seen them? They're supposed to tell you, I don't know, they take this swab from you. They got little medical warnings and everything, how you do it. But they're supposed to tell you what part of the world you're from. And there is so much interest in people finding their family bloodlines that there's even in this show on BBC called, Who Do You Think You Are? In this show, celebrities research their family lines, their history. And there are some celebrities, when they do all this deep dive into the origins, they found out that their family tree, there's some shady character. And you will see many times some well man, respected actor have an emotional breakdown on TV because nobody wants criminals or shady people in their family tree. So I want to ask you a question. What if you found out this morning that your family tree had prostitutes, murderers, adulterers, thieves, and incest? 
all in your tree. Nobody would want to be part of that family tree, right? The family tree I described to you is a lot like the family tree of Jesus Christ. It's the family tree of Jesus. The family tree of Jesus looks like this, like the Charlie Brown Christmas tree. There's nothing impressive about it. We look at the family origin of where Jesus came from, and we look at it and say, like, how could the Messiah come out of that? How could God do something amazing out of that? And sometimes we look at our lives, and we look at where we've been, and we say, God, could you really do something powerful and awesome out of something insignificant and vulnerable as a tree like this? And the gospel tells us, yes, he can. And that's the story of Christmas. That it's not about us, but it's about what God can do. And many of us, this morning, we look at our families and we look at our lives and we look at our past. And this is what it looks like. It's not even standing up. But if you watch Charlie Brown at the end, they decorate it and they have an awesome Christmas. Because God can do amazing things through sometimes inimpressive things. This morning... We're going to see the power of gospel on display in Matthew chapter 1 as we look at the first family Christmas tree. And here's the truth that we learn. That the perfect Savior came from imperfect people for imperfect people. So this is what I want to tell you. I want, to look, I want you to look your neighbor in the eyes and tell them the truth. I have issues. But tell them your family has really big issues. I'm just telling you, your family has really big issues. How many guys would say, man, you have issues this morning. It's all right. Man, let's be honest. You're going to go into your family Christmas and by the way, you guys know your family has issues. Some of you guys have anxiety about that right now. But it's all right. And let me just tell you, a lot of times when we read the Christmas story, we kind of skip over the genealogy. The only time we read it is when we're reading the Bible through a year and we have one of those plants. But when we go to the Christmas story, we go right into the angelic announcements to the shepherds. Because those names seem insignificant. It's just a long list of boring names. But the Jews in the first century, they would have been surprised by our lackadaisical attitude towards this portion of Scripture. To them, the, Jew, the genealogy was absolutely essential for the setting of the birth of the Christ. And in Matthew chapter 1, we get profound insight into the genealogy of Christ. Let me tell you about the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew was written to a Jewish audience. It was written to these religious people. And it was written to show them that Jesus was the Messiah. And what Matthew does in his genealogy, he's starting off by showing them, okay, everything that we say about Jesus is true. And his genealogy will back it up. So in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, it says this. This is the genealogy of Jesus. I want you to underline that. The Messiah. The son of David. The son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. And on and on it goes. I want you to know, notice, the story doesn't begin, the Christmas story doesn't begin once upon a time in a galaxy far, far away. It starts with parents. And he had grandparents. And he had great-grandparents. This is a person. Matthew's describing. Why? Because Christianity and the Christmas story is a true story with historical background. And the author, Matthew, is telling you who Jesus is, and he's grounding it in real history. 
Matthew goes into great detail showing us how Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah because he makes huge claims in verse 1 and in verse 16 he is declaring to these Jewish people who have been waiting for the Messiah that Jesus is the Messiah. So he's got to give him some historical background. And in the time of Christ, Jesus wasn't the only one claiming to be the Messiah. If you read history, other men, many imposters claim to be the Messiah. And how would the people back then know who to believe? One answer, check the genealogy. Because he could not be the Messiah if he's not of the line of David. God had said thousands of years earlier in 2 Samuel chapter 7, the Messiah must come from the line of David. See, the genealogy back in those times, it was like a resume. For example, you couldn't put money down and buy land and just take a deed back then. You had to prove your ancestors came from that tribe and from that land. And you had to bring your genealogy and say, hey, I have a right to buy this land. So the genealogy was extremely important. And what Jesus' genealogy tells us, that he was a direct descendant of David. And this is what Matthew is saying. This is the first thing we learn from the genealogy of Christ. That Jesus is the promised Messiah. Notice Matthew's genealogy in verse 16, he says that Joseph is not identified as the father, but he's this identified as the husband of Mary. I want you to show this. Because if you read genealogy, everybody's the father of the father of the father of the father of, until you get down to verse 16. And it says this, and Jacob was the father of Joseph. Look at this, the, underline that word, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. See, Matthew is making it very clear that Joseph is not the father of Jesus, that God was. Jesus had no human father. He was both fully God and fully man. Though he was, he was born of a virgin and though Mary held him in his arms, he held the universe in his hands at the same time. And God in the Old Testament gave his people clear prophecies that when the promised Messiah would come, they could know who he was and when he came. See, in Genesis chapter 3, God said that the Messiah would be born of the seed of a woman. You read that. And this is important because everyone else in the Bible is referred to as the seed of a man. The only one referred to the seed of the woman is the Messiah, speaking of the virgin birth. And here Messiah, Matthew is saying that Jesus didn't have an earthly father. This is important to see. In, Ma in this chapter, Matthew gives his readers historical proof that Jesus was the Messiah. So let me break it down, the historical proof that Jesus would be the Messiah. God promised the Messiah would be the seed of a woman. The next thing he said, he said that he would be a descendant of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And so Jesus was a direct descendant of Abraham because he was a Jew. So we found out the Messiah would be this. He would be of the seed of the woman and he would be a descendant of Abraham. How many children did Abraham have? Yeah, he had eight. He had eight sons. I mean, all of us are descendants of Abraham, but Abraham had eight sons. In Genesis chapter 2, 22, God eliminates seven-eighths of the descendants of Abraham when he says that the Messiah would be of the line of Isaac. So Isaac then had two sons, Jacob and Esau. Again in Genesis, God narrows it down and when he eliminates 50% of the descendants of Isaac and God says that the Messiah would be of the line of Jacob. So you see what's happening? He's making this, God has been creating this address in history for the Messiah. So when he would come, we would know who he is. He said the Messiah would be of the seed of the woman. He would be a descendant of Abraham. He'd be of the line of Isaac and he'd be of the line of Jacob. Jacob had 12 children, out of which 
developed into the 12 tribes of Israel, which became the nation of Israel. But in Genesis 49.10, God begins to give a prophecy. He eliminates 11 twelfths of the tribes of Israel when he said the Messiah would be of the tribe of Judah. Within the tribe of Judah, there were many family lines. God eliminates all the family lines but one in Isaiah chapter 11 when he says that the Messiah would be of the family line of Jesse. Anyone who studied math can see the phenomenal, the phenomenal historical probability going up as God is narrowing this down. God said his Messiah would be the seed of the woman, a descendant of Abraham, a line of Isaac, the line of Jacob, the tribe of Judah, and he'd be of the family of Jesse. Now, Jesse had eight children. And in Jeremiah 23, God eliminates seven-eighths of the family line of Jesse, and he says that the Messiah would be of the house of David. See how he's narrowing it down? He's narrowing it down. The Messiah would be of the seed of the woman, a descendant of Abraham, the line of Isaac, the line of Jacob, the tribe of Judah, the family of Jesse, and he'd be of the house of David. And there's a portion of Scripture right here. It shows us that Jesus is the Messiah. He had all the credentials, but... This is life back up, back it up. West. Let, me, let me back up what his, there's so many prophecies. Look at the prophecies that show that Jesus lived out the proof of the Messiah. There was a prophecy that Jesus would be born in the city of Bethlehem, according to Micah 5.2. That was fulfilled in Matthew 2, 2, verse 1. It says when Jesus was born in the city of Bethlehem. There was a specific prophecy that when he would be betrayed, he would be sold for 30 pieces of silver and not gold in Zechariah 11.12. Matthew 26, 15 says, what are you willing to give me if I hand them over to you? They counted out from 30 pieces of silver. The Bible says then, then when they gave them a piece of silver, they would be thrown on the floor, not placed on the table. So many different things. And there was this other prophecy that he'd be crucified with sinners around 1012 BC in Psalms 22:12, a very unique prophecy for the Old Testament that it said the Messiah would be crucified, hands and feet pierced against a tree. And that was fulfilled in Matthew 27, 38, when two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right, one on his left. Well, so many people, people tell me all the time, well, Benito, thousands of people were crucified. True. But yet this method of crucifixion that talks about in Psalms 22 wasn't even used until 800 years after the prophecy in the times of the Romans. So 800 years before this prophecy was given, man, uh, it, finally the crucifixion and the, that way to punish criminals was invented. 800 years before, God predicted the Messiah would be crucified. And these, pro these prophecies were written years before Christ was born. And they can be historically verified through the Greek Septuagint, which was written in 1250 B.C. So these were way before. This is what it tells us, that the Messiah would be the seed of the woman, a descendant of Abraham, the line of Isaac, the line of Jacob, the tribe of Judah, the family of Jesse, the house of David. He'd be crucified, betrayed by a friend, sold for 30 pieces of silver, not gold, and he'd be born in the city of Bethlehem. There are over 300 passages in the Old Testament that predicted Jesus would come. And of those, there are 48 specific prophecies that gave details to Christ. Life and death. And about 30 to 35 of those prophecies were fulfilled in one day with Christ. What are the odds of that happening? Dr. Peter Stoner, an analysis that was carefully reviewed and pronounced to be sound by the American Scientific Affiliation, states that the probability of just eight of these prophecies being fulfilled in one person would be one in ten to the 17th power. I can't really explain that, but this video does. Check out this video. It shows the reliability of Jesus being the Messiah. Watch this. 
How do you know what's true is really true? That's where the evidence comes in. Christ's offer to turn you into a new person is real if his claim to be God is true. So let's consider the evidence of eight prophecies proving his claim is true. Do you know what the probability factor is of only eight prophecies being fulfilled in Jesus? No. A one in ten to the seventeenth power. One in ten to the seventeenth power. Huh? That's one in ten to this many times. I don't get it. If you were to take ten to the seventeenth power Girl Scout Thin Mint cookies. How many? That's over a quintillion cookies. And spread them across the state of Texas. Yeehaw! They would cover every inch of the state and form a pile of Girl Scout Thin Mint cookies two feet deep. That's a lot of Thin Mints. A whole lot of Thin Mints. Now take one more Thin Mint and lick all the chocolate off, toss it into that pile, and stir the whole thing up. Blindfold yourself, walk the entire state from Amarillo to Laredo, stopping just once to stoop down and pick a single blind Thin Mint cookie. Got it. Take off the blindfold. Aw, nuts. The chances of you picking the chocolateless cookie is the same as the chance that one person could have fulfilled just eight prophecies about Jesus in one lifetime. That's crazy. It's unthinkable. But Jesus Christ did not fulfill eight prophecies in one lifetime. Whoa. He fulfilled over 300. 300, girl! Whoa. And 29 of them in just one day. The prophecies are historically documented. The facts that actually happened to Jesus are historically documented. There's only one thing left to do. I know. For me to weigh the evidence. It's all part of the evidence. Because if it is true that he is the Son of God, what he offers you, a new life in him, is real. Now I know it's real, whether I believed it or not. It's all part of the evidence. That's a lot of evidence for us to kind of look at if we're really claiming the, look at the claims of Christ. Well, people tell me all the time, well, Jesus could have read all these prophecies and just made them happen. This is what some skeptics say. Well, how do you determine when you were born? How do you determine what type of death you will have? How do you determine that you would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, not gold? You can't. Because God's word is true and Jesus is the promised Messiah. See, it's impossible to predict the future unless you're God. Like Bill Gates, one of the smartest men in our world, CEO of uh, Microsoft, said in 1981 that 640K of memory should be enough for anybody. The IBM CEO in 1943 says, I think there's a world market for about five computers. For a household, right? And the director of U.S. Pan of the office resigned in 1875 because he said, there's nothing left to invent. Yet, hundreds of years before, 
Jesus was predicted that the Messiah would come, that it would be so evident that we would know for sure. And what Matthew does in the genealogy, he writes it down, he gives historical facts, he points out the family, he shows all these different things because they can know he's making big claims. And let me tell you, whatever you believe about Jesus or not, there is historically documented, verified evidence that Jesus performed miracles and he did these things. And it's something to think about. So this is what the genealogy tells us. Jesus is the promised Messiah. Here's another lesson we learned from the first Christmas tree. Jesus is related to everyone. How many have some weird relatives? Jimmy Fallon did this thing where he asked people to hashtag my weird family with some of the weird things that they do. Here are some of the things that people do. At Katie underscore Dell 23 says this. My dad moved the treadmill outside so he can get fresh air while running. At Brett Atkinson said this, read my sister's diary, first entry, dear diary, I just stole you from the store. At Godly Perry said this, my brother told me people are wrinkly because they're being slowly sucked to hell. That's what makes kind of sense of your kid, right? At Gabby Duval said this, my dad makes bird noises in the grocery store to let mom know where she is. I love that. And let's look at the relatives of Jesus. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. This is a rich heritage. Jesus' family line starts pretty impressive. He, Jesus, the son of Abraham and David. Abraham to the Jewish people was the father of faith. And David is the most Powerful king they've ever had. He's royalty. So Jesus comes from royalty and he comes from spiritual heritage. And Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, who's underlined this. Mother was Tamar. What? We read verse 3 and we're like, okay, that's random. Why would they put that in there? But to the Jewish person, it'd be like, they'd be flabbergasted. Like, why is Tamar in there? Matthew is giving them a huge red flag. He's giving them an incredible indicator. Not only is he inserting a woman, which is unheard of in a patriarchal society, he was reminding the readers of one of the most scandalous events in the entire Old Testament. Matthew didn't have to mention her name. Matthew could have moved on and said Judah's kids were this. But he specifically says whose mother was Tamar. Tamar wasn't actually Judah's wife. She was Judah's daughter-in-law. Hello, somebody! The Bible keeps it 100. Incest. In the Bible. I love that about the Bible. It doesn't just cover up the, the sins of their leaders, but it shows them that Jesus is greater than even our mistakes. And, and, and let me tell you a little bit about the story. Judah, one day, he goes out to search for love in all the wrong places. He's looking for a prostitute. And while he's out, Tamar, his daughter, dresses up like a prostitute. Tamar's son, Judah's, Tamar's husband, Judah's son, dies, leaving her both husbandless and childless, which is like a double curse in those days. And she feels the only way to keep her family line going is to carry Judah's baby. So she dresses him up like a prostitute, chicks Judah, and sleeps with him. In the process, she gets pregnant. And then after she gets pregnant, she hooks up a conversation with Jerry Springer. She brings him on the Jerry Springer show in Israel. And she says, you are the baby's daddy. And everybody's freaking out. 
Can you imagine Christmas and Thanksgiving dinner at Judah's house? <laughs> Give me a sight of awkward every... You think your family's jacked up. This is Jesus' family. Why would Matthew insert Tamar into Jesus' lineage? Because he's telling us, he's making a point that Jesus is for everyone. In Jesus' family tree, yes, it's royal. There's David. Yes, there's spiritual heroes. There's, there's Abraham. But it's filled with all these sketchy sideways steps. The perfect Savior came from imperfect people for imperfect people. See, Christmas isn't just for a chosen few. It's not just for the insiders of everybody that looks like you, talks like you, thinks like you. The Christmas story is for everybody. It's not just for those in the lineage of Abraham and David. It's for outsiders. Moral outsiders, racial outsiders. In fact, if you go down and you look at Matthew 1, he's going to mention, which is unheard of in this time, five women throughout the genealogy in Matthew's genealogy. Which, and one of these things, because in a patriarchal society, inheritance were passed from male to male. Females would never receive an inheritance. Everything was male-oriented. So for Matthew to do this, he's giving the readers a very huge a very huge indicator that Jesus is here for something different. He mentions Ruth, who was a Moabite. He mentions Rahab, who was a Canaanite prostitute, who deceived her own people. She just didn't act like a prostitute. She was a prostitute. He mentions Tamar, who was a Gentile. And remember here, Matthew is addressing a Jewish audience. So they're getting mad when they're reading this genealogy. Because he's showing them that Jesus is for everybody. He's not just for Jews. He's not just for Americans. He's not just for white people or brown people or black people. Every person matters to God. He's for every race and every background and every nationality. Jesus came to save the whole world. And not only were there racial outsiders, but there were moral outsiders. Three of these women were involved in sexual morality. Two were involved in prostitution. Then there was Bathsheba, the only Jewish lady in the genealogy. And she's on the list. And she was known for the most infamous affair in the history of Israel. She was the Monica Lewinsky of Israel. She was. Why? Because Jesus came to save sinners. Jesus didn't come to make good people better. He came to make dead people alive. And here's another lesson we learned from the Christmas tree. Jesus can rescue anyone. This is why the gospel is good news. If you study these names in detail, it's like God pulls off these lists from the local jail. Nearly all of them have notable failures. Abraham lied to his wife. Jacob was a cheater and a liar. Judah was sexually immoral. Then there's David. Look at verse 6. Jesse was the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, and it has in parentheses, whose mother was Bathsheba, the widow of Uriah. See, Matthew is reminding us that, oh, though Jesus is from the line of David, that lineage is not perfect. David, Israel's most famous king, was an adulterer and a murderer. David's life can be summed up with two names, David and Goliath, and David and Bathsheba. And when David became king, he committed adultery with the gorgeous Bathsheba. He's out there for a walk one night. He's on the roof. He sees her bathing. And he decides, even though she's married, to have sex with her. Then he covers it up. And when he couldn't kill the husband Uriah, his loyal friend who's with him, who's fighting for him, he decides to murder him. So let me tell you about David. David's a liar. He's a murderer. He's an adulterer. Can you imagine if that happened in one of our political leaders today? Social media would be all over that. But not in David's time because it's different. In David's time, you wouldn't go to prison. In that time, in that world, you get away with that. But 
what you find out is David's life shows us that Jesus can save anyone. And, and then you look at Solomon. He's on that list. He acquired his father's lust for women. He was a polygamist. He was an adulterer. And on, and on we could go. This is not a list of perfect saints. This is a list of imperfect people. You see, Matthew's reminding us Jesus is from a royal line. There is Tamar. He's from a royal line, but yet there is Bathsheba. He's from a royal line, but yet there is Rahab. Jesus is the Messiah. He is for everyone and he can rescue anyone. And maybe you're here this morning and you feel like David. You've done things that have been haunting you day and night. You've made mistakes and you've hurt people that you love. You have guilt and shame that's overwhelming you. You don't know what to do. You can do what David did. David cried out to God and God forgave him. That's the story of Christmas. In Psalms 51, this is what David says. Have mercy on me, O God. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify my sin. For I recognize my rebellion. David repented and set his life from that day forward to follow God. God forgave him, restored him. Even though he dealt with the consequences of his sin, God still used him. Because God does his perfect work through imperfect people. This genealogy teaches us that we all need a savior. And at the end of the genealogy, there is this, verse 17. Thus, there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David. 14 from David to the exile to Babylon. 14 from the exile to the Messiah. There is 42 generations. And he is listing them out very intentionally. Anytime in the Bible you see numbers like this again and again and again, it's trying to tell us something. What is he trying to tell us? Moses is pointing out to us this number 14. The reason is, is because this number is important because seven is the number of completion in the Bible. Seven is the number of days that God took to create the earth. On the seventh day, he rested. The seventh, the, the week gets structured into seven days. On the seventh day in the Hebrew law, you were expected to the rest. It was called the Sabbath or the Shabbat. It was a time of rest. In the Old Testament, there was a year of Jubilee. While every 49 years, the Israelites would forgive everybody's debt, everything they owed, and there was a big reset button on life. In Matthew, at the end of his genealogy, this is the point he's making. He shows us 42 generations. In other words, six generations have come before. But now, a seventh generation is going to come. And he's going to start a new way of living. And that seventh generation is Jesus. Because Jesus now is our rest. What does that mean? The book of, Hebrew, actually, book of Hebrews actually says that when we enter into faith, we enter into the rest of a walk with Christ. We no longer have to work or worry for our salvation. We no longer strive for our salvation. Jesus brings salvation. Jesus lived the life we should have lived, and he died the death we should have died. Jesus is the Messiah for everyone. He can rescue anyone, and he is our rest. And I think the great way that we can celebrate Christmas in this last service here together is to take communion together. We can have the band come forward, and you have not received the communion elements, just raise your hand right where they're at. We want to have the ushers give you communion. Freedom Church, Jesus is our rest. And one of the things that we can do is we just remember. Remember, remember this day, all that God has done. How faithful he has been to us as a church. How faithful he has been to us as a congregation. How he has saved us. What he's done in our lives. I want everybody to bow your head and close your eyes. We are closing a chapter as a church. God's been faithful. He's provided us every step of the way. Every month we've had the 15,700 in needs. We're no longer, we're no longer going to need that because it's a time of rest for us as a church. We're entering into God's promises, his plan, his purpose. And we're thankful for that. We're thankful for what God has in store. 
But maybe you're here this morning and you feel like, man, my family Christmas tree is, ugh. It looks a little disjointed. It doesn't seem like everything I wanted it to be. But guess what? Jesus loves you. Doesn't matter what issues you come from. Doesn't matter where you're at. Jesus loves you. And before we take communion, Scripture is very clear on this. That here at Freedom Church, we offer communion to everyone. But here's the reality. There's one caveat. You must put your faith and your trust in Jesus. And if you don't have faith and trust in Jesus, the Bible says that it's not good for you to have communion. But guess what? Jesus invites you into his family tree. He invites you to adopt, be adopted because he is for everyone. He loves you. And if you've never put your faith in Jesus, this morning, no matter what you've been, yes, Jesus, there's, a, there's, there's David, there's Abraham, but there's Tamar, there's Rahab, and there's Judah. If you've messed up, guess what? Welcome to the club. We all have issues. We've all messed up. That's the story of Christmas. We all need Jesus. And this morning, if you've never put your faith in Jesus and you say, man, I want to take communion this morning. I want to walk with Christ. Just raise your hand right there where you're at. I want to pray for you. Yeah. Say, I'm going up. Just say this. Say, say, Jesus, I thank you that I get to be part of your family tree. I don't have to be perfect. But you were perfect for me. Forgive me of my sin. I admit that I'm a sinner. And I realize I need you, Jesus. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the Freedom Church Podcast. We hope that you were inspired and motivated to continue to grow in your faith. Don't forget to subscribe and share with others.